Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 516th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who balances the larger world context with local, practical, and creative solutions. We're talking with David Holmgren about downshifting, to a resilient future. We're very excited to have the co-founder of Permaculture on the show today. When I got David on the call, I just let him talk and it turned into a 90-minute chat. So we decided to split it into three shows. This is part one. And if you enjoy the content, please consider supporting the Urban Farm Podcast at urbanfarmpodcast.org. Since developing permaculture with Bill Mollison in the 1970s, David's local and global influence has gone beyond permaculture networks. He is a public intellectual working outside academia, government, or corporate support. His depth of thinking, design practice, and teaching has been continually informed by practical experience through a lifetime of household resilience, voluntary simplicity, and innovative action. He has received many awards, including an honorary PhD from Central Queensland University. He's written eight books about permaculture and related topics, been part of at least another five books, written multiple articles, given generous presentations, has over 40 years of practical experience. He is an authority on the permaculture concept and how to make it work. And basically, he's the guy who penned it. We are honored to have you on the show today, David. Are you ready to rock permaculture? Yes, definitely. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Uh, yes, I suppose for someone in their 60s, that's a, a long journey. Yes. Uh, I, I think being raised in a political, radical activist family in the middle of the campaign against the war in Vietnam mm. uh, sort of cued me for not accepting what I'm told by authority in whatever form that might be and choosing my own path being prepared to swim against the tide you know when the mob is hitting that way walking quietly the other way so I think that 
was an incredibly important grounding. Looking back, I can see that although my upbringing in the suburbs of Perth in Western Australia was not uh, particularly self-reliant, relative to today's world, of course, there were a lot of things that uh, I osmotically absorbed, you know, as a result of my parents growing vegetables and having fruit trees and chooks and all sorts of things that, of course, we're actually actively recreating now. And a lot of that has is, is come through in, in my latest work. So that uh, recognising that, I suppose, once you're of my age, that childhood influence was a different enough world that it actually has some some lessons in that regard. But the exceptional nature of, you know, the, my parents as radicals, as dissidents, as prepared to take risk and put themselves on the line in all sorts of different ways really cued me for having, you know, that path with, with permaculture. Perhaps a step of radical rejection of upbringing was rather than trying to stop all the bad stuff happening in the world, I suppose permaculture for me became an expression of how we are going to create the world we want by living it now. And I suppose as a student in a radical course for design professionals, architects, landscape architects, and urban planners called Environmental Design in Tasmania, where I was a student in 1974. I, by chance, happened to meet a character who was a little bit infamous in uh, Hobart academic circles in uh, the small fishbowl of Tasmania, you know, the, Australia's smallest state. Uh-huh. And that, of course, was Bill Mollison. But I didn't know much about him. He was never a lecturer of mine. I never went to any of his lectures. He was, in fact, at a different institution. He was at the Tasmanian University and I was at the then College of Advanced Education. But I developed a totally informal mentor relationship with him and, in fact, was sharing house with him. And that's it was through that that we hatched the permaculture concept and it became 100% of my time in the course I was studying. Now, it's a bit difficult to explain to people, how would that be possible when there's a curriculum and where there's a timetable? Right. Well, no, there was none of those things in environmental design. So I characterise it as the most radical experiment in tertiary education in Australia's history. And pretty classically, it ran from 1970 to 1980 before it was emasculated and turned back into a conventional design course. I was there 74, 75, 76. And of course... Permaculture One, which was published in 1978, was largely based on the work and the manuscript, which I was working on in those years. So when I met Bill Mollison, he'd had five years at the front lines of the emerging environment movement in Tasmania, which you know, has since been acknowledged as one of the pioneering places in the modern world of where you know, environmentalism really took off. And he was in a candidate for what was really the first Green Party in the world. And when I met him, he'd sort of come to the same conclusion that I had, even though we were a generation difference, that why don't we just create the world we do want rather than just battling or primarily battling against the things that are wrong. Nice. And so that was, apart from the conceptual nature of 
permaculture in terms of philosophy and activism. You know, it, it had that sort of background and lineage. When the response to permaculture was so huge and it's hard to explain to young people, I suppose, what was going on in the late 70s, that 15 mainstream publishers could approach a sort of really an unknown and cantankerous academic from Tasmania and a completely unknown graduate student wanting to publish the manuscript that became Permaculture One. You know, like what was going on? No kidding. <laughs> huge interest in, you know, what we would call sustainability today. So permaculture sort of caught that wave. Of course, Bill Mollison's charismatic nature, gift of the gab, encyclopedic knowledge, and the fact that he was ready for a bigger stage than than he had in the University of Tasmania, where incidentally he had more people come to his lectures apparently than any other lecturer in the university. But I never went to any of his lectures. It was all about environmental psych. Well, what would be called today environmental psychology or soci- uh, biology. It was sort of Bill Mollison's course, you know, but I was much more interested in his his capacity and skills and knowledge as a ecologist. Uh, but he was that polymath, you know, interested in everything. You know, permaculture sort of, he really took it to the world. And I was, you know, 23 when Permaculture One was published. And there was a lot of doubts I had, firstly, about well, I don't actually have a lot of the lived skills and embedded knowledge that's actually behind the permaculture concept. And I was passionate about developing those practical skills. I was sick of academia. I walked away from the environmental design course before getting, you know, the magic ticket that would enable me to be, a, you know, registered landscape architect and embedded myself even more in developing the practical skills and the skills towards becoming a permaculture design consultant. And I was also, I suppose, aware of the potentially toxic nature of eco-fashion, rock star sort of status for someone in their 20s, <laughs> you know, seeing what happened to, uh, you know, a lot of the musicians. And, right. And so I, I sort of like stepped away from that world. I mean, there were also, you know, working with Bill Mollison when I was young and learning so much from, you know, his incredible knowledge, I was able to ignore what a lot of people later recognised, <laughs> I suppose, as his difficult character, you know, a lot of geniuses are like that and that it would be difficult to shift from that mentor relationship to a collaborative a truly collaborative relationship so that Bill Mollison really took permaculture to the world and I went and applied the ideas as a guinea pig myself to see can you make this work you know in one place for one person (laughs) so I had a much more modest perspective but you know as well as being the co-originator of the concept, along with Bill Mollison, I've always acknowledged that he was the father of the permaculture movement. Yes. So, and the primary way he did that was not, of course, just his charismatic speaking and touring and, and that sort of thing, but was really through creating the permaculture design course that in various forms so many people have done around the world and has been... I think most people 
involved in permaculture would agree has been, you know, the greatest mechanism for its spread. And I didn't become involved in teaching on a permaculture design course until a decade later, after they were started in 1990. Of course, I did a lot of public speaking and workshops in all sorts of ways connected to permaculture, and a lot of it through particular areas of expertise in reading landscape, in knowledge of trees and tree systems, and my passion for forestry, and in terms of property design and earthworks and a lot of those sort of subject areas that I had um, you know, particular knowledge in. But it wasn't until 1990 that I was <laughs> pestered, basically, by permaculture teachers to come and co-teach <laughs> with them. So for 10 years, I was a sort of an observer uh-huh. of permaculture design course process. And to some extent, I've always maintained a role or certainly for decades, as an internal critic of permaculture, not just in terms of the strategies of how it gets extended, but even pointing out the downsides in some of the techniques and strategies that, you know, I'd been associated with <laughs> creating. So, you know, like I, that role of kicking sacred cows and dogmas, sort of trying to prevent, you know, the development of sort of very narrow limited views. That certainly has been one of the criticisms back from, if you like, more traditional approaches to organic farming and other lineages that permaculture was associated with. Sometimes there has been that criticism of it being eco-fashion or, you know, promoting things that, you know, hadn't been sort of proven to work or pushing those into places and contexts where they weren't appropriate. And, you know, some of that has really just been how rapid uh, the the spread, the viral spread, if you like, of permaculture has been. So there's inevitably been, you know, lots of failed projects or poor examples and and people with enormous enthusiasm doing things and then deciding it was... It was all a load of rubbish because it didn't work or right. for them. You know, so, so those things are just part of the way, as I said in the book, Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability, that ideas get grubby in the real world. And permaculture, if you like, got grubby through rapid popularisation. Uh-huh. Uh, whereas if you compare it with, say, sustainable development a decade later, it came out of academia too, like permaculture did, and got very grubby very quickly in the world of international politics. Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, those things happen, and I now, you know, accept with a lot of equanimity those sort of things and all of the different interpretations and applications of, of permaculture, some of which I sort of, you know, agree with and think are fantastic and others might I might go, oh, you know, that's um, maybe off track or whatever. So there's always that relationship to something that's successful when you're the, you know, the starter of it, that it develops a life of its own. And I think that's um, yes. a great thing about agriculture. Yeah. Well, and so how does it make you feel that you basically – co-penned a concept that has touched millions of people worldwide and really has changed our future. How does that make you feel? 
Well, as, as I was explaining, to some extent, it felt like it happened to me rather than oh, I yes. had this huge drive to go out and change the, the world. I, I mean, I suppose because I came from a, a family of activists, I didn't have the sort of, you know, the naive notions that, yes, we're just going to put a lot of energy into it and we're going to, you know, suddenly create a different world. You know, I, so I had a lot of caution about that or or not the sort of the huge drive. And so I am incredibly, have an enormous appreciation for all of the things people have done with permaculture because it's made my path so much easier to keep pushing forward, yeah. you know, over a whole lifetime because that positive feedback, you know, is, is something that, you know, comes back to me as, you know, as the co-originator. Whereas, in fact, you know, a huge number of people have devoted their lives to developing permaculture solutions and teaching and communicating those. And many of them have, you know, burned the candle of their activism at both ends. Right. And, uh, You're talking to one uh, of them. You know, yeah. And I, you know, had that, you know, in a lot of ways, I, I feel I've had a, what's felt like an easy road even though a lot of people look at what I've done and they say, you know, how do you sort of keep that passion and energy going over all that time? And, you know, I, I suppose it's partly because I, you know, don't necessarily have high expectations, but I get the, um, the positive feedback, you know, from both my own successes and other people's successes. Yeah. There was a time when permaculture didn't exist. And then there was a time when it existed. How did you and Bill make the jump from thinking about it to actually getting it created, getting it written down? What was that, what was that adventure like? The first thing was that it, it was starting from a seed of why doesn't our agriculture if not look like natural systems, function like natural systems. And that, you know, that was identifying the core unsustainability of our primary way of providing our basic needs uh, through a working relationship with agriculture, with, with nature, which is, of course, what agriculture is. And rather than just being some small part of the economy, it's actually the foundation for everything else and, you know, our, our past and our future sort of still essentially rests to a huge degree in, in that activity. So I think the crafting that was just really something starting very small in terms of what I was passionate about within the context of environmental design. But it was in 1976 when I was working on that that Bill had been starting to talk to his students and suggested that what we were talking about was something significantly different from anything we could fully identify or recognise in literature searches and, you know, other research. And I suppose it was his confidence more than mine that he, he suggested we needed a name for it. And, you know, so coining the term permaculture was that you know, pivotal point. And that same year, we co-authored a two-part article that was published in the Tasmanian Organic Gardening and Farming Society journal about permaculture. So that was really a beginning point that was preceded uh, the book Permaculture One by Two Years. And 
I think it was in the context of those organic movements in Tasmania that were already flourishing at that time where, you know, the ideas were first sort of exchanged and germinated. But as I'd said previously, it really became global very quickly in the earlier 80s. You know, so one of the signposts for me that what we'd done was something significant was when there was a review by Earl Beinhardt at the New Alchemy Institute in Massachusetts. Yes. And that's one of the few groups that we could sort of find that seemed to be, you know, working a bit along the same lines as we were at that time. John Todd and the work that came out of that, Living Machines, and, you know, that was all part of that process. But they were also looking at the the tree crops idea, which, of course, was central to permaculture and you know that review sort of convinced me that uh, we had actually done something significant rather than just trusting Bill's you know big out there view that yeah this is really uh, something new and different. I mean at the other end of course you get a lot of practical down-to-earth rural people including farmers who look at permaculture and say well isn't just a lot of that or isn't it just all common sense? (laughs) Right. And a lot of that's true. I mean, I would say, yes, a lot of it is just common sense, but it's no longer common. So I've always acknowledged that permaculture is, for modern people, reconnecting to a whole lot of things that we've lost at the same time that it's crafting, grafting that together, that traditional common sense and especially the common sense of more traditional cultures and indigenous cultures with the new understandings from ecology and design science and so that is a sort of a hybrid of things that have come essentially out of the modern world out of science and design as a new literacy and combining it with these more older understandings of working with nature, working with nature's patterns. Wow. Thank you for that explanation. That was, that was nice. How did you come up with the name? Oh, well, as I said, it was Bill's idea that we needed a name. And of course, it was his suggestion. And the notion of permanent agriculture and obviously owes a lineage to Russell Smith and his work on tree crops in which he said tree crops the subtitle being a permanent agriculture. So permanent in the the sense that we would today talk about sustainability, that the ability to persist. Now, of course, the criticism can be made quite validly that permanent implies some unmoving, unchanging thing like a rock or something non-living. But, of course, we definitely meant it in the way that Russell Smith was saying, of enduring rather than unchanging. So it has a lot of resonances with sustainability, which as a concept emerged a decade later. But of course, by permanent agriculture, we saw that as the foundation for permanent culture. Mm -hmm. Although Permaculture One was very much focused in the agriculture domain, by the time Bill wrote Permaculture Two, only a year after Permaculture One was published, 1979, in the introduction to that, he clarified that 
is it, it meaning permanent agriculture and permanent culture. Of course, all of that was informed by the limits to growth concepts, which uh, were published in 1972 and made it clear that industrial society, you know, really had no future in the long term, that it, it was both to be blunt, shitting in its own nest, uh, which would kill it eventually. And here we are 40 years later, still having the same conversation. Yeah, and that it was depleting the non-renewable resources that its existed depended on, so that we saw permaculture really as a response to that fundamental challenge. Okay, how do we work with less energy work more with natural processes to do things in ways that don't require so much resources and don't damage soil, pollute the environment and, of course, contribute to what has become the larger-scale global non-negotiable forms of pollution such as accelerating climate catastrophe that we're now facing. Right. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, David. It's been a, a, a great pleasure. And it's been a great pleasure for me, too. This is, has been an amazing conversation. So how can our listeners get a hold of you and your organization? Uh, well, Holmgren Design is our website. Holmgren Design, that's uh, holmgren.com.au. And you can see some of the things we do there. And the sister site is, of course, through Retro Suburbia. That can also access us. And our colleagues run the site permacultureprinciples.com, which is, you know, a bigger spectrum of work that connects to us as well through those three sites. Excellent. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash David Holmgren. This concludes part one of our interview with David Holmgren. Pay attention on Thursday as we release part two and Saturday as we release part three. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's 
denaliecanning.com forward slash free.